Welcome, documentarians, once again to The Documenteers. I am me, Bob Sham, and today we have yet another 30 for 30, which means Drew is with me. In the show, we say it's the third 30 for 30, but when we bank this show, and we banked it around when the conference champions were decided before the Super Bowl happened, but we later decided to record the two Bills episodes. So, really, this is our Fourth 30 for 30 episode, Small Potatoes, Who Killed the USFL? And I learned a lot about the USFL, like that it existed. And it also features a very notorious human being from whom the title is based upon. This is our first posted show since the Super Bowl. And allow me to congratulate the the Philadelphia Eagles and their fans on their Super Bowl victory. We talk a lot about uh, the crazy shit Philadelphians did in this episode, but it was really a lot of what they did during when they won the conference championship. We kind of don't touch base on what they did after the Super Bowl because it was recorded before, but they had a good time in Philly after that Super Bowl win. I don't think any horses got punched, but there was a guy that ate horse shit. It's always got to be something. I think that guy eating horse shit put me over the edge. I think I want to check out Philadelphia. I've been to quite a few places, but I've not been to Philly. And the guy who ate horse shit has convinced me that I need to go check this shit out. Hit us up on them iTunes. I have to mention iTunes because most podcasts go through iTunes. So, But there are other apps that are slowly growing. Stitcher, SoundCloud, etc. Some I'm not on. Those are not the good ones. You want to find the ones I'm on, that we're on. Documenteers. So throw us five stars, give us a little simple review. It can say nothing, but if you do want to praise us, we'll accept that too. But do that, and that's how you support us. Help us spread the word about what we're doing. And it doesn't cost you a dime. Just a little bit of time doesn't cost you a dime. Let's move on to our feature film discussion, 30 for 30, Small Potatoes. Keep on docking. Now, here is a motion picture film, a thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Once upon a time, there was a pro football league that played its games in the spring. and Sinead never hooked up. I never got that. They seemed like she liked him so much. And they were, you know, they were never in a scene together. That's Not a single a little, time the whole series? Little uh, 90s sitcom trivia. Okay, so uh, read back to me your fanfic. Okay. Uh, Sinead <laughs> walks into the room dressed in something lacy. Martin's like, what's up? <laughs> Real smoothly. Anyway. <laughs> no, no, go on. No, no, I'm done. I'll have to, I'm workshopping, I'll have to get a first draft. <laughs> Is that the Mothman on your shirt? No, but I wish it was. You know, it might be a representation yeah, of the I Mothman. I think it is like a, a doodle of the Mothman. Now that there's two Mothmans, too. There's two? Yeah, there's been the Chicago Mothman. Current, current Mothman. 
Like there's current sightings of a Mothman in Chicago? All over Chicago the past year. Wow. Man. Chicago Mothman. Things really going on in Chicago. <laughs> I'll tell you what. What's up, Docs? As in Docs with an X. Well, I'm with Drew. Nice to be back here. Thanks, Bob. And we are here to discuss as we make, we're making our way through the ESPN 30 for 30 original films. And probably some of those side ESPN films, too. We're probably going to get to those. But we are here to discuss our third 30 for 30. The Mike Tolan directed Small Potatoes Who Killed the USFL. What I really like about this title is that he pretty much tells you exactly the answer to his question in the very first scene of the entire documentary. Right. And it's not what killed the USFL. It's who. With the quote about small potatoes. Mike Tolan is, he's a very prolific producer. I could list a lot of credits, but I'm just going to stick to one film he's produced, Wild Hogs. Wild Hogs producer Mike Tolan. Which made how much of the box office? According to our handy-dandy information sheet, since we are professionals here. That's right. 250 nearly 250 million. That's really good for some wild hog shit. Some big money on those wild hogs. That's Justice League budget right there. That's why he's Wild Hogs producer Mike Tolan. Mike Tolan. Instead of, you know, radio producer Mike Tolan. I've seen a lot of these when they aired. Um, And I saw this one. And up until the point when I originally saw this movie, I had no idea anything about the USFL. Completely new to me. I had just really started getting into NFL, probably at the time. But USFL? I mean, I'd heard about uh, the XFL, that thing that kind of came and went. Was that in the late 90s? Yeah, Vince McMahon's Extreme Football League. It's allegedly going to try to come back, I think I heard. Time is right. It is kind of like a good time to jump in on it, but people are over-politicizing football as it is. So if XFL, That's why he wants to jump in on it. <laughs> yeah, so XFL is going to come out of the gate some politicized sports thing. If that works, I could see it being hot for a minute, but never underestimate the, the, the brutal pendulum that is uh, American political perspective. If you're just setting yourself up on that, well, you're just riding on a trend, and that trend will fade, and then XFL will... Just end up going, if it ever starts again, we'll just go the old way once again. Look, the NFL's not going anywhere either. Nope. You can talk as much shit as you want about, oh, those players, they're disrespectful guys. Doesn't matter. As much as you might complain about the NFL midseason, when those playoff games are coming, everyone's watching them. Yeah, it's the just NFL. Like it's have. the Super Bowl, man. It's a yeah. huge part of American culture. If you want to be all pissed off about a tweet, go ahead. That's not going to ruin it for the NFL. I mean, there are a lot of people don't like the NFL. There's like the head injuries, the CTE stuff. I mean, which is legitimately terrifying. It's that's a legit complaint. We all heard the reports and high school recruitment is going down maybe for the best. As much as I do enjoy the sport, there are some problems and it's just kind of bizarre when things get politicized because it's not a political, it's not political to be like, what yo, these head injuries are a problem. That's just about giving a fuck about health and people. It's hard to watch those, even as a huge fan of sports like we are. It's really hard to watch somebody get hit and their arms go dead spasms on the ground, somebody obviously unconscious before they hit the ground. That's not pleasant to watch just as a human being. (laughs) Yeah, any injury, uh, you never want to see that. No, it's tough, and that's a legitimate reason to not want to watch the NFL. If you don't think they're doing enough, they're not treating the players right, they don't care about these injuries as much as they care about money, that's legitimate. That's not being angry about somebody tweeting about the NFL. (laughs) That's a legitimate reason to not watch it. People do, but you know what? We like sports. 
We like sports as escapism. We like sports as a unifying factor in this country. I, that made me so angry that you're trying to use it as something divisive because it's, one, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful things about sports is that it's one of two things, along with music, that crosses every divide, mm -hmm. political, racial, economic. It does not matter when your team wins. You're going to be jumping up and high-fiving everybody. Or in the case of the Philadelphia fans who just won, uh, trying to climb greased flagpoles, driving <laughs> ATVs up the stairs. <laughs> Punching police horses. Again. <laughs> Running into poles. <laughs> the, 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 a headline I had read, I didn't read the article, but is that another Eagles fan punches a police horse. I like how it has to say another. Look, as a New York sports fan, I automatically am predisposed to hate Philadelphia sports teams. Not an Eagles fan here. But I like that. I like that about the fans. I like that they're totally fucking insane. <laughs> it's just entertaining. It's like watching the Bills Mafia. <laughs> I mean, my sports teams don't tend to be in the same division or conference as Philly teams. I've never had anything really against the Philadelphia teams. Sometimes I'll even root for them if my stakes are out of it. But those Philly, battery-chucking Philly fans, calm down. That's what I say. Yeah, yeah. A whole lot of them aren't even going to remember that their team was made the Super Bowl. <laughs> They're just going to wake up the next day asking how the game went. Maybe in a drunk tank. Well, we're not talking about the NFL. Well, maybe a little bit more. All right, we were supposed to be talking about this film. We're talking about this league, the USFL, which was came about in uh, 82, 83? 1982 was the first season. USFL was meant to be football league in the spring. And the director of this movie, Mike Tolan, Wild Hawks producer Mike Tolan ran a production company. Halcyon Days, owned by Arliss producer Mike Tolan. Arliss so you know he's got the sports chops. <laughs> oh, shit. We get out of this baby period of documenteers, and we really get some traction going. Maybe we can review Arliss episodes. <laughs> as a, it's kind of a side piece. Well, apparently, according to these notes you left us, there were seven seasons of Arliss. That I do not remember. Seven seasons? I feel like I remember one season of Arliss. I think I remember the first one, and I was like, boy, not interesting. <laughs> this isn't going to last very long. <laughs> Maybe he produced seven seasons and only one aired. <laughs> Arliss is probably the most made fun of HBO series. Maybe the second season of True Detective stands up at this point against Arliss as far as, like, people panning it. Well, like we were saying, Big Shot Mike Tolan. Big Shot Mike Tolan, he and his uh, Halcyon Days production company, landed the TV production rights to the USFL. So he was there on the ground floor of this little upstart league that was coming up. That's a cool thing about this 30 for 30 series is that they do have a different director for every one of them. But then you've got stuff like this where he's almost the only guy to make this documentary because he has all that footage of USFL. And it's incredible to see that these are the highlights, these are the shows, this is what you want to see. If you got somebody talking about USFL and making the doc about it, honestly, I could have watched these grainy USFL highlights for hours. They were a lot of fun. The and best I, part of this whole thing. And like I said, I knew nothing about the USFL the first time I watched this. So it was like a lot of fun seeing guys like Steve Young and Jim Kelly, the, these big time athletes that I remember when I was a child and later in the NFL kind of get their start. Jim Kelly didn't win the Super Bowl. But he was undeniably a really good quarterback. He's a Hall of Famer. He went to four Super Bowls. I mean, that's a that's an argument worth having, I guess, if you want to say, would their NFL careers have been even better if they went straight to the NFL and didn't waste time in the USFL? Or maybe it helped them out. And again, one of the things that makes me really excited when I watch this documentary 
is obviously it's coming from a slightly biased point of view. This guy was in charge of all these video rights for the USFL and obviously loved the league. But it seemed like every single person in this documentary loved the USFL. Just had such a good time in it, thought it was so cool, was really excited about it. Well, every single person in this documentary except for one. Except for one person who we'll touch base on very soon. Even when they had a story to tell about how they didn't get paid by owners and had to drive to some rando town in Texas to go get their check. Racing each other down the street because they knew only the first half of the checks wouldn't bounce. A gumball rally. I've always wanted to do that. That looked like so much fun. And it was, again, just the joy in the voices of these players recounting a story that, you know, you could see millionaire NFL players now being really upset about. Like, this owner's bouncing checks. These guys just kind of expect it and see it as this wild, fun thing from this outlaw league. <laughs> we got in our cars and raced each other down the street trying to get our checks. And it's always fun to hear Howard Cosell uh, comment and discuss on anything. They were on ABC. I don't think they were on any other network at the time. But it was specifically spring football. And while, no, of course it did not have ratings that matched up with the NFL, which was reaching a fever pitch in terms of popularity. But it started out pretty good. Um, attendance in 82, the documentary told us, it was through 17 weeks was... 2.5 million total, and they exceeded the rating of 5. This rating system is archaic now and means nothing, but that was a big deal at the time. If you compare it to the NFL, it seems weak, but if you compare it to a new upstart league, it was looking very good. And again, coming from a biased point of view, but they did say that those numbers exceeded their internal goals yes. to start out the new league. And again, the biggest thing that struck me here early, you know, us being just a little bit too young to have actually watched the USFL when it was out there. Right. What really struck me was the level of competition here. I mean, you had great players in here. The game looked the same. It didn't look like the XFL when you're watching and you're seeing, obviously, an inferior league. I'm even going to say it didn't even look like college football, which is, you know, obviously minor, minor league compared to the NFL game. It looked like NFL quality football out it, on the field when you're watching all these videos of it. I would almost describe it as college plus. There's a part where you're showing footage of Steve Young holding a football like a loaf of bread, and he's getting away with it. I mean, he was always a good scrambler as a quarterback anyway. Uh, watching somebody do that in today's NFL, they're going to pay for that in a, in a bad way. You can just tell how the things are. But it's exciting in that way because people like college ball because of the randomness. All these young players are having to scramble and make fun trick plays. That's what a lot of people like about college football. The USFL seemed to have that element without being college ball, and it was a professional football league. That's a good point. It had that that wild, unpredictable, kind of fun shootout offense element of it. They talked about the greatest game in, AFL, in USFL history, which was Jim Kelly versus Steve Young going head-to-head -head in just an absolute shootout. Jim Kelly played for San Antonio, which had the... I think it was San Antonio. I think it was... Or Houston, one of the Houston, Texas teams. Houston Gamblers. Houston Gamblers. And they played the run-and-shoot offense. And in this game, him and Young just basically went head-to-head -head against each other in a shootout. It ended up with Jim Kelly throwing for 574 <laughs> yards and five touchdowns no. in a comeback victory over Steve Young's LA Express. I think he says that's the most he's ever thrown in a game. Oh, yeah, that's obscene numbers. <laughs> 
just what a game to watch that must have been. They're showing the highlights of it. And again, just you had Steve Young interviewed for this documentary. You had Jim Kelly interviewed for this documentary. And they're saying it's the first thing they talk to after both having Hall of Fame NFL careers after the USFL. The first thing they talk about when they see each other was this game in the USFL they played against each other. A game that was scarcely attended, apparently. L.A. has always kind of had that reputation for not coming out. L.A. is Dodgers country these days. That's about the one team that you can guarantee will fill things up. L.A. supports a winner. The first first time I joined you here on Documenteers, we talked about King's Ransom, the first 30 for 30 episode, Mm -hmm. when Wayne Gretzky goes to L.A. and all of a sudden every celebrity is at the stadium watching King's games and it's the place to be. L.A. loves a winner. They don't love a loser. The USFL was a little different. A bunch of interesting owners, uh, the Tampa Bay Bandits, Bandit Ball, baby, uh, was Bandit Ball. co-owned by Burt Reynolds. He was with Lonnie Anderson at the time, who posed for some uh, bikini pics uh, promoting the Bandits. 1980s smoke. And fans would pour on to the field and just in regular season games. And there was no, like, hey, don't celebrate too much. USFL just seemed like just party and have fun. That was so cool, man. We saw the group celebrations that it took the NFL until 2017 to embrace. All these fun touchdown celebrations that we loved seeing in the NFL this year. The Vikings won touchdown in their conference championship game. They celebrated by putting on a little curling match afterwards. It's fun. It's entertaining. We got to see so much of that. And the USFL had that from the get-go. The part with the Tampa Bay Bandits, it all kind of reminded me of that uh, Keanu Reeves movie with the replacements. They <laughs> got all the strip club dancers to be the cheerleaders. <laughs> right. They got the outcasts to come play and get together and just have a good time playing professional football. How many Clint Howards would you give uh, the replacement? Oh, man. I'm talking at least three and a half out of five. Whoa. I've never seen it. You're making a mistake. There's a group sing-along to I Will Survive. Is that kind of like a <laughs> biopic? It's about the replacement players when they when there was a lockout, right? Oh, yeah. It's absolutely true to life. <laughs> Anyway, there was a fan, and I, I don't know what team he was, but he was painted totally red. He looked like Gigi Allen. I'm, and maybe it was a Tech, a Houston game. Isn't Gigi? No, he's from Vermont. A little Gigi Allen sidebar. I'm not convinced that it wasn't Gigi Allen. Every time they needed to show how cool the USFL was, they would show part of a Tampa Bay Bandits game and Bandit Ball, and then they would show Burt fucking Reynolds in his glasses, <laughs> yeah. just chilling, looking just as cool as he did in the 80s, being like, man... Everything was great for a while. Have you ever seen Citizen Roof? No. He plays, uh, God, what is he, like a businessman or evangelist? His little boy assistant's like oiling him up. I heard he regretted making that movie later, but. Was that the sequel to Gator? I don't think so. Oh. It had uh, Laura Dern in it, one of my favorite roles. I give it I give it three and a half Clint Howards. You don't have to write down the Clint Howard ratings. <laughs> That's just for fun, a little extra for the crowd. We stick to our Herzog ratings. Those are the ratings. That will exist to the end of time. The Philly team, what were they called? The Stars. The Stars. They were considered the best. They would be like, the Patriots are to NFL today, the Philly Stars were to the USFL then. New Jersey has a pretty, probably one of the most successful USFL teams in the general. Not the first season. They didn't win too many games, but they did succeed in making it so legitimized to everybody by signing Herschel Walker, the Heisman Trophy winner. To an obscene, the richest contract in football history at then. They said, we're going to be major players here. We're signing Herschel Walker. We know every NFL team wants him. He was an underclassman signed out of college. Again, kind of breaking ground there. 
And I love the press conference afterwards where the New Jersey General's original owner, they just basically introduced him as a rich oil man. He was in his press conference and was like, after too many beers, I decided to give Herschel Walker $4 million. Right. And that's one of three Heisman winners in a row. Three that, years in a row they signed the Heisman winner out of college. That the USFL, beating out the NFL. That the USFL signed. Beating the NFL. By just throwing money at them. Literally, in Steve Young's case, he tells the thing where they took $100 bills and threw them at him. Yeah. Said, you want more money? Here you go. He's some broke kid, like, <laughs> slowly picking the bills up off the, the ground. I would have done the same thing. And then he got $40 million. Yeah. He would become richer than God later. The USFL invented the two-point conversion, didn't they? And the challenge flag for instant replays. Yes. Red flag still used today in the NFL. Uh, you know, it's very funny... The Titans-Patriots game, which did not go in my way. But it was very funny, that part where Bill Belichick wants to challenge the play. He walks up to the ref, and he goes, um, I'm challenging. And the ref looks at him and goes, you got to throw that little flag. And Belichick's like, I'm, I'm challenging. I'm telling you. And the ref's like, you have to throw the flag. So he, in the most passive-aggressive, like, exasperated way, just, like, flings the flag in the air. It was very comical. I feel like Bill Belichick's almost a parody of himself at this point. Yeah. Just the surliness and the uncooperativeness. <laughs> when they won the AFC Championship here, he just walked past the AFC Championship trophy. He was like, that doesn't even matter to me. It's funny to hear <laughs> announcers talk about Belichick because they, they'll sometimes pretend like he's having a real party on the sidelines. <laughs> and then you just look at him and he's just got his arms crossed and staring straight off. But that's the year 2018. We're, we're trying to go back to the 80s here. And the USFL glory days. Sorry about that sidebar. My, my family <laughs> up in Massachusetts will appreciate that Patriots sidebar. Nobody yeah. else will. I'm tired uh, of the Patriots, man. So that <laughs> that oil that oil guy, he sells the generals off, like you say. And he sells it to, uh, gosh, what's this guy's name? Like an upstart. He's an upstart businessman. Yeah. What, what is his name? I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys would have heard Danny? of him. <laughs> Daniel? Donald. Donald Trump. All right. Donald J. Trump. This is where it got just so surreal to watch this documentary. Yeah. Because should we should we spoil it already? Yeah, go ahead. Basically, the entire premise of this film, the title, Small Potatoes, Who Killed the USFL, the entire film just basically tells you Donald Trump killed the USFL by being... Well, by being Donald Trump about it. <laughs> and then the, it starts out with an interview about him being very unpleasant when the when the questions don't go his way. Yes. He doesn't like being asked questions that aren't super flattering towards him. And this is older Trump, like around... This is the 80s again. Oh, it's the 80s. Because Mike Tolan is also interviewing him. I guess he probably uh, right, interviewed right, him. Right, right, right. The later one. 2008 or 2009. And Trump, he wants to be on camera, so he'll show up. But he doesn't like... The questions at all. All he asks about are where the cameras are pointed at him, what he wants to see. <laughs> and then once the question that's not, that he doesn't want to answer comes up, he just ignores it, walks out, hits his head on the boom mic as he gets up, <laughs> and walks away saying it would have been small potatoes. A doesn't matter. pat on the back to Mike Tolan. No, well, I remember he, he stands up and he, after he says what he says, he's like, do you agree? He needs that validation. Very telling. Eh, it's almost like he really needs validation and only cares about things that are about himself oh. and say good things about him. Weird. Now, be careful. He's our president. That's what's so strange about this is we're trying to go into this documentary, which, again, was made before the idea of a Trump presidency was any idea at all. This documentary is made way before that. None of these guys have any political skin in this in this documentary. It's all about the USFL. Yeah. 
And again, you just see the exact same situation come up over and over again, where everybody getting interviewed about Trump says that he was only in it for Trump. He doesn't care about the players. He doesn't care about the other owners. He doesn't care about the league in general. He just wanted himself. Basically, the NFL didn't want him to be an owner. He wasn't approved at that time. Couldn't cut it. So he decides to try to force his way into the NFL by buying a USFL team and then telling them they're going to move to the fall so they can compete head-to-head with the NFL, sue the NFL for a monopoly when, obviously, TV channels already have are showing the NFL in the fall. So now it's a monopoly, so i got to sue them. And that will force the NFL to merge with them. Bringing USFL teams in, at least the most powerful owners, the way it happened with the AFL-NFL merger. And then he'll be an NFL owner, kind of forcing his way through the back door after being told no (laughs) by kind of buying out everybody else and burning some bridges. And he's doing this within three years of the league starting. Yeah, he was only an owner after the first year, which was fairly successful. So then he buys a team. There's only two years of the the USFL left. I could be getting mixed up a little bit here because it was a little bit strange watching this documentary, seeing this pattern go down. Whether it was Mike Tolan's choice to keep the focus on the USFL, the AFL is never mentioned. Which is weird because that's got to be the game plan here. It was an upstart league that challenged the NFL, and eventually they did merge. Powerful owners of the AFL got NFL teams, teams like the Chiefs, the Bills, the Jets, those all came from the AFL. And they merged, and, you know, they played the Super Bowl against each other for the first couple years. That's exactly what they're trying to do here with the USFL in the second half of the film. It's kind of strange that they never mentioned the AFL. They maybe could have pulled it off with a little patience. They tried to, came off to a good start, but that foundation was not that sturdy. And they kind of pretended that they had a house made of stone that could never... Well, not they. Many people had a lot of uh, say about how things were decided. Trump butted heads with uh, the commissioners of the USFL were Chet Simmons and John Bassett. And well, Bassett uh, was the owner of Tampa Bay. I thought he was also like a commissioner. I don't think so. I might be wrong here, but they were just saying that he was kind of like the most beloved owner in the league. Sure. Who everybody kind of looked up to. But there was a lot of butting of heads between Trump and John Bassett. 80s Trump is peak Trump. It's like his celebrity is right here. He can maybe seem annoying, but he's not hated. You might say that President Trump is peak Trump. I would argue that's more like watching a turd go down a playground slide very slowly. And <laughs> yeah, this is the football, the football, the yeah. football. That's what we're talking yeah. about. 80s Trump is peak Trump. This is Ivana Trump. The Ivana years, yes. His presence did inject something into the league at that time when he walks in. There there was a little excitement, a little, uh, especially over the fact that, you know, maybe money won't be an issue in dealing with this league going forward. But Trump butts heads with John Bassett. But Chet Simmons points out that the league attempting to expand only after one year and then later trying to move to the fall was, was all about the money. Money was the motivator. Uh, kind of yeah. no shit. Uh, <laughs> sure was. Thanks, Chet. <laughs> Trump in interviews um, as blaming the broke owners for a lot of the trouble, which was an issue that you hear a lot of players deal with. But even after you hear their broke owner stories, they're still like, oh, but we had a great time. We had a great time. Bill Simmons, there's that part where Bill Simmons is like, yeah, he couldn't cut it trying to get into the NFL, so he had to jump in and try to get into this upstart league. Everyone who's worked with Trump, everyone acknowledges his role in the downfall of the USFL. I think Burt Reynolds is like, yeah, he's all right. He's an all right guy. I think that was like the kindest thing anyone ever said to him. But even he had to acknowledge like, 
yeah, that was uh, the death knell. It was weird to see. There was one quote especially that I liked there where they said the, the first year of the USFL, all the press, all the media wanted to talk about Herschel Walker. Yeah. This huge star getting signed to this brand new league. And then they said the second year when Trump bought his team, everybody wanted to talk about Trump. He was a bigger star than the stars in football because he just came in here and started throwing money everywhere. He bought the New Jersey Generals. He signed all pro players out away from the NFL by giving them huge amounts of money to come play for the Generals, basically making them a, a proto-New York Yankees Steinbrenner type team. He just signed everybody. And the Generals won. They doubled their win total the first year under Trump. They had all these new players. They had excitement. But they didn't win a title. No. They did not. Probably, I'm assuming the Philly Stars would win that one in the end. Yeah, that was another kind of strange part that they, they did gloss over the troubles here. You can tell this is being filmed from the point of view that loves the USFL. So it does, it does gloss over a lot of those low-budget problems, a lot of that quick expansion problems. Because at one point, they say the Philly Stars, the most dominant team, the face of the, of the league almost, that wins the second year. And then the third year, they also win the title, but they win it as the Baltimore Stars. It barely even mentioned that they moved cities. <laughs> right. The most successful franchise in the league had to move home cities. So obviously everything's not exactly great. And as we said before, L.A. and Houston, they had great players, but fans were not really crowded out. It just seemed like maybe the stadiums didn't need to be that big. Well, they were playing wherever they could. They right. weren't getting their own stadiums built. So the L.A. team, the Steve Young L.A. Express, was playing in the Coliseum, which is an enormous stadium. Oddly enough, the Rams, moving to L.A. now, are playing in that exact same stadium while their new one's getting built, and they have to block off some of the seats because it's just such a huge stadium. It's not meant for <laughs> just playing at regular league <laughs> games, but the USFL was drawing 7,000 people, right. which in that enormous stadium looks like... <laughs> it looks like next to nothing. I think they said it looks like 50, <laughs> just when you're looking <laughs> out at it. And they're all bunched on one side. Because <laughs> yeah. there's so many open seats, everyone just is converging with each other. Everybody's got a seat on the 50-yard line. Oh, <laughs> uh, that, that would have been fun to go to those games. As you stated, John Bassett is he's referenced a lot in reverence, and especially put up as almost a foil for Trump or vice versa. That reverence is also looked back in comparison to Trump. It's like he just glows brighter, especially in the way. Because everyone who worked with Trump during these times does not have kind things to say about him. Yeah, they set it up as a as a straight two sides of the coin, good guy, bad guy thing in this documentary. Bissett was beloved by all his players, by the other owners, and his idea for it was to stay the course, to not give out crazy salaries to everybody and inflate the, the payroll of the league right away. It was to stay in the spring where they had kind of the schedule to themselves almost. You know what? Watching it again, just straight up as a sports fan watching this as someone who didn't take part in the era, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Spring football league that had competition level almost as high as the NFL. I'd be watching that for sure. Yeah. Watching the games, it'd be fun. Absolutely. I would totally check that out. Usually by the end of spring, I'm like hankering for some football at that point. And if you look at the idea of moving it to the fall to go head-to-head -head with the NFL and trying to watch more football on different days at a slightly worse level, I wouldn't watch that because you'd be watching the NFL anyways, no, especially since busy. most of these teams are in the same city. <laughs> it, you, you see it and you're saying this push to move to the fall makes no sense just as an observer who can think about sports. Like, no, please. You're almost begging them in the documentary. Like, no, stay in the spring. Yes. <laughs> Don't expand your team so crazily right away. Build this league. It, it could be fun. Everybody seems to be enjoying it. You, they went off to a respectable start 
And what should have been heeded was patience. When you have a, a guy like Donald Trump, he his uh, it's pretty he's pretty notorious for being very impatient. Uh, uh, no patience there. Unfortunately, Jean Bassett has a brain tumor. He's not getting better, and he was kind of on par with Trump at least trying to control the situation. But with his health in decline, Trump essentially takes over a lot of decision making behind the USFL. And he throws his money around to make it happen. And, ba and Mike Tolan makes no bones, and most people interviewed in this movie, make no bones about the fact that he runs it into the ground. After year one, when they're talking about team expansions, after just one year, I'm not a businessman. I'm not a sports team owner. But you tell me after one year you're going to try to add, what did they say, 12 to 18 teams? Yeah, they added six more teams right away. That's a bad idea. Year. Bad idea. That's too fast. And if you look at future leagues that came up from nothing, like the MLS would be a big one mm. that, ex that had a little problem with expansion too. But they even started much slower than this. They weren't expanding at that rate. And even there, it took them years to get to the point where they actually could support more expansion teams. Obviously, football is an easier sell than soccer in America, but it's still it's just a way to build the league. To really, build your audience. I'm really interested in seeing where the MLS will be in 20 years. I personally hope it stays that long. But it, but it is, it's just a very slow process. But you see the fandom slowly building. You see it going somewhere. No, it's not like at that European Premier League level. But you're starting to see names. And these, these towns are really starting to kind of get up on it. And it helps that their current status maybe not so elite in terms of like ratings or attendance that's that also benefits because you can go to these games at good prices and build your fandom and i'm a huge national predators fan now when i started going to games they were awful i get ten dollar nosebleed seats we went all the time and that's how i learned to love that team and of course they start winning and it's like yes now everybody loves that team that's how you build your your fan base after year three, they decide they're going to move to the fall, which gives them no off-season either because they just had the championship in the spring. So then they would start playing the fall. Yeah, the league went into – was suspended because the Trump lawsuit. was suing the NFL for fall TV airtime. The NFL at the time – I mean, most people in America had like four or five channels maybe, and the NFL could be seen on three of them depending on the day of the week. Uh, this is the most obvious thing ever again, Yeah, is that he moves the team. They decide they're going to move to the fall after the big push from Donald Trump to do it. They they kind of, the death of John Bassett, they say, okay, we're going to move to the fall after our third season. And that never happens because the big lawsuit comes in. They say, oh, man, we moved to the fall and none of the TV channels want to show us because they already have NFL games. Yeah. No shit. And these <laughs> networks are even trying to sell off a lot of their time. For a lot of these games, they're wanting to kind of, they need to make some money moving these around. They're having a hard time sending NFL games to other networks. And they sure as hell are not going to buy USFL games on top of that. It's shocking to absolutely no one. And least of all, Donald Trump. You know he knew this going into it was going to force the legal battle. That's what he wanted. They did sue the NFL for antitrust in court. The league suspends operations while the lawsuit's happening. The lawsuit goes down, and the USFL wins. They win. NFL's guilty. found guilty of antitrust. Easily found guilty because they sure do monopulate all those networks. They're a monopoly. It's found 
proven in court the NFL is guilty on all charges. But the jury, they pull a, what I like to call the, you're right, but you're an asshole. <laughs> they, That's perfect. The, Trump, it. Trump and the USFL win the lawsuit, but the jury only awards them one dollar. They had asked for, what was it, a hundred billion dollars or oh, something? Oh, yeah, over a billion. A huge amount of money. Especially for uh, mid-80s. Maybe not a hundred, but yes, an enormous amount of money they asked for. One point something billion. And the jurors are like, uh, yeah, you're not worth that. That We they, can obviously tell you're only doing this to try to force the NFL's hand they had to that, play ball with you. They had that lady juror who described, like... Favorite moment in the entire documentary is the juror they decide to interview who comes out of it and says that while the law was on their side... We felt that there was not enough evidence to prove chicanery on the part of the NFL. She seems so proper. That is, like, old-world lady. God, you could just picture uh, today's day protesters holding up signs around Trump Tower that say, no chicanery. They get their $3... It turned out to be $3.76 after interest or multipliers or whatever the hell the legal system does to a $1 thing. And then the league immediately calls it quits. They didn't get their billion dollars. They already had turned everything off and sent everybody home. They're not going to get to on these channels. (laughs) They don't have the money to keep going. And Donald Trump says, I didn't get into the NFL now, so I'm not a part of this anymore. That was his plan. What a And the whole league just it's over. After three seasons in the spring, they move to the fall and never play a single game in the fall. And that's that's it for the USFL. And the death of the USFL is also symbolized in the fact that John Bassett uh dies of his tumor, which is sad and unfortunate. What I did like was was it the commissioner who goes out and he brings out two this is later on, later in the later years. When Mike Tolan is filming for this documentary, he brings the check, the check that they got from the NFL (laughs) to the USFL for $3.76. With interest. And he says, here it is. This is the artifact. This is the death of the USFL. This (laughs) check right here. Trump's like, yeah, you could keep that. Yeah, he brings it and shows it to Trump. And he looks at it and just kind of nods and then says, interview's over. You can keep that. (laughs) You figure Trump would want that check. It symbolized that he won something, right? I mean... Yeah, I think even he figured out that that was actually a loss. <laughs> <laughs> that it was a dig. Despite winning the lawsuit, it it killed the USFL. It was over. That that decision, that was it. They could. I felt like they could have gone on in the spring. They really could have done it. They could have gone on for a long time. And maybe if they had picked up the huge fan base, then they could have challenged the NFL and maybe forced that merger. But after only three seasons, they didn't have the clout for it. They didn't have the ownership for that. They didn't have the this, this structure for it to put into place. Build your viewership. And then when you see the NFL in their own fall position, their ratings fluctuate downward for any reason. Then you can start talking about making that kind of a move. They just were not there yet. And if you look at the history of Trump's are- businesses... <laughs> A whole lot of them don't last more than two years like this one did. Yeah, like bankrupting a casino. I don't know how you do that. These are places where people literally walk in with their paychecks and hand them to you. I don't. (laughs) But uh, the American people have spoken. They want a guy that uh, bankrupts a casino. Congratulations. (laughs) It was weird seeing these interviews with him now because obviously today in 2018 with President Trump, he's on TV and on Twitter every minute of every day. And it's the exact same guy. 
He has not changed a single bit he can since maybe, these USFL days. He even uses the same words. I think he talked a little better in the 80s. Full sentences came well, easier to him, but I think he's true. a lot more repetitive now. But he is old. He was younger. The hair was better. He probably still weighed 239 pounds. <laughs> but he's still using the same words. Every time someone wants to talk to him, he talks about loyalty. If, are you loyal to me? That's what he needs to ask. Are you right. loyal to me? Whether you're uh, in a, uh, a high rank in a sports league or maybe the FBI director, you've got to be you got to be loyal to Trump. You be loyal to him. If you ask a question about him that he doesn't like, the interview's over. He probably would have called this movie fake news if that mattered back then. They'll probably because <laughs> again, this came out well before there was the idea of a president Trump. They'll probably call. Uh, he'll probably. Well, he's already feuded a little bit with Mike Tolan after this came out. I'm sure he'd call this podcast fake news too. But we're just talking about the documentary here and the USFL. And again, small potatoes, who killed the USFL? Look, I'm sure there were other reasons. It wasn't solely one person taking over and running it into the ground. No. But that one decision killed the USFL to move it to the fall, to get involved in this pissing contest lawsuit with the NFL instead of playing games. That's it. That's the end of the USFL. The documentary makes it very clear that it's Donald Trump that killed the USFL. And yes. even again in the title, he, as he walks away dismissively, he says, it would have died anyways. It would have been small potatoes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I ran it into the ground. It probably it would have died out anyways. <laughs> he kind of admits, He says it would have died out sooner if he didn't get involved. He uh, says that in this thing. Uh, again, no, no. got to make your own reality here. He kind of halfway confessed to, like, shooting the horse before it was lame a, a little bit. I mean, that's just, that's just Trump, man. He's, uh, he, he, can contra- he can contradict himself within the the same uh, speech uh, within two sentences. But, hey, folks, it's up to you to, like, see it or not. We said all the things that the USFL didn't have. It didn't have enough to stay going. But what it did have, it had the players. It had the quality. It had the visionaries behind this. Because a lot of that marketing, we talked about the two-point conversion, the touchdown celebrations, the instant replay, all that did end up moving to the NFL. The year after the USFL officially folded, 15 players who played in the USFL the year before were NFL Pro Bowlers. Not just NFL players, were NFL Pro Bowlers. 187 USFL players total would go on to play in the NFL. This wasn't small potatoes. This was pretty legitimate. Yeah. But it didn't work out. It sure didn't. And it's too bad. It it really seemed, or at least the film set it up to seem like it really could have went somewhere if there were just smarter decisions uh, behind the helm. And if everybody didn't kind of kowtow to money. Uh, yeah, money. Who'd have thought? Now, Drew, this being our third, 30, fourth, 30, we, of course, rate documentaries on our revolutionary Werner Herzog scale. What we're going to do is you're going to give your one through five Herzog rating. I'm going to give my one through five Herzog rating, and then we're going to merge them together. And, that, and it's total collected Herzogs will be... Out of 10, will be its score. Tell me about this movie and how many hard shots do you give it? All right. I actually had a tough time grading this one because while I absolutely love watching the USFL and hearing these stories of the players, I think it's so cool seeing these highlights. I could have watched the backflips highlights all day. They just had everybody going Ozzie Smith and having a great time on the field, it looked like. Even though one thing that stood out was, man, watching football really sucked before we had HD. But I loved 
I really enjoyed watching this documentary. I feel like, again, Mike Tolan was there. He had the access. There was all this really cool insider info and interviews with a lot of people who really mattered in in this storyline. It was great. He obviously was showing it from only one point of view, but he was showing what did happen. So, I don't know. It's hard to grade right there. I don't think it was the best as far as, you know, making a documentary about it. But it was definitely entertaining. It had all these great cogent points, and it told the story of what the USFL was and maybe what it could have been. So I'm going to go ahead and give it three and a half stars. Mm, That's a respectable score. It does seem a little one-sided, but it seems pretty straightforward at the same time. You realize right off the bat that Mike Tolan misses, oh, pardon me, Bald Hawks producer Mike Tolan really misses the USFL. But there are a lot of voices on here that back him up. And even though this is about the life and death of a league, it almost was kind of fun and almost comical in a lot of ways, the way people were reminiscing about this movie. I had a really hard time taking deep notes because there were so many talking heads and so many names, and I didn't even catch all of them, but there's so many people lit an interesting voice. But it, but Mike Tolan, it wasn't overdone because it was about, this movie in a lot of ways was about how much Mike Tolan loves and misses the USFL. And while he was in it, it is a pet peeve of mine for people to inject themselves into movies like that. I felt like he did it in a good and reverential way. And that was cut together in a very entertaining fashion. I felt thoroughly entertained about with this movie. Almost in, I don't want to say a tabloid way, because it just seems like if Trump's in it, it's got that tabloid quality already. But it is in there. And I couldn't I couldn't help but like just be very uh, amused and entertained by the feature. But as far as like how it stands out in a special way, not too much. It's just a straightforward, good story about something that I didn't know very much about. So I definitely like learned a lot from this movie. But as far as what I'm going to give it, straight down the road, three Herzogs. Give it 3.5. I give it three. Combine those. Hold on. Voltron style. I'll get it. Hold on. <laughs> 11, no, 6.5 out of 10 Herzogs for Wild Hog producer Mike Tolan's Small Potatoes, who killed the USFL. It was Trump. Bandit ball, baby. Motherfucking Burt Reynolds. Hell yeah, bandit.